Uh, good morning. I tell you what, you guys are a little cold, right? I mean, you're a little stiff. You're not responding in the appropriate time. You're not moving. Very, everybody up. Come on, everybody stand up. Let's go. Find somebody around you. Give them a hug, a handshake, uh, whatever it takes. Just get moving. Get that blood flowing a little bit. If you're watching online, give somebody a hug around you. All right, all right, everybody back. Let's go. I started. I know. I know. All right. Well, I am really looking forward to continuing in this series called How Not to Read Your Bible. And the subtitle for this book that we're studying through is Making Sense of the Anti-Women, Anti-Science, Pro-Violence, Pro-Slavery, and Other Crazy-Sounding Parts of Scripture. Now, these titles and these topics are some of the toughest that we've ever done as a teaching team. I mean, there's nothing easy with these, right? Today, we're talking about slavery in the Bible. Next week, we're talking about women in the Bible. You didn't want to miss any of these, right? I mean, you just don't because there's some good stuff that we're going to be able to walk through together as a church. Now, some of these topics are kind of like lighting a match and watching a flame consume everyone around you. You know, you say slavery, it lights a match, and rightfully so. You say women's role in the church, it lights a match, and that forest fire flows and catches on and goes. Why? because there's a lot of controversy about some of this stuff, right? I, I mean, there just is. Well, I was doing some yard work on Thursday and just kind of pulling up some dry, dead stuff around our flower beds. And I was taking it, we have a, a burn pile in the back of our property. And so took it back there, threw it in there. And I went into our garage and I saw all these boxes that were still there from Christmas. I thought, well, I'll just go burn those too. So I take them out to the burn pile and I come back in and there's this massive plastic garbage bag with all the wrapping paper in it from Christmas. I said, well, I'm going to burn that too. But before I leave the garage, you know what catches my eye? This can of gasoline sitting right there. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm going to admit that. All right. I think, well, let's get this party started fast. So I dumped a little bit of gasoline in the garbage bag with the wrapping paper in it take it out, throw it on the burn pile, and then I'm doing a few other things for a while. And I come back and I take the lighter and I go to light the garbage bag, thinking the wrapping paper, that'll get everything flowing pretty well. And I light the flame and all of a sudden it was boom. And it was like slow motion. I got knocked back a little bit. All I'm smelling is burned hair. I don't have a lot, okay? All I'm smelling is burned hair, and there are boxes and paper on fire all over my yard. And while I'm trying to put the fire out on my coat, because my coat caught on fire, I realized I couldn't open my eyes all the way. 
because my eyelashes had singed together on my eye, and I had to physically pull them apart to be able to open my eyes all the way. Any idea what happened? The fumes were in the garbage bag, and when that, light, that lighter lit, it just exploded that thing, and it went everywhere. <laughs> A little bit later, I, my wife comes home, and she said, what did you do? I mean, just, you know, she knows I do dumb stuff all the time, but, you know, kind of yelling at me, and, and I say, can you smell the burned hair? And she's going, no, I don't smell anything. I smelled it for the next several hours, and then I figured it out. I had the full spa treatment, you know, where they burn the, the, the hair in your ears and your nose and your eye. Everything was burned, and all I was smelling was my nostrils and the hair. that had, I know that's gross, but that's kind of that's where it was, right? And so it, it really is. It's the same thing that happens with the Bible when you bring up controversial topics. The same thing. Man, man people, good intentions, bad intentions, they pour gasoline on this stuff, and then they light a match, and they wait for it to explode. And it explodes in negative ways and, and catches everything on fire. And then we're just left with a bunch of burning ash or burning eyebrows, in my case, and it's a mess. It just is. Do you have people that like to bring up controversial things about the Bible and either try to prove or disprove them? Like start conversations that are just, you know they're going to be on edge. You know, it's like your brother-in-law at Christmas time, right? You know, you don't like him anyway, but he causes controversy because of what he says or what he does. That's the same thing these type topics do in our daily conversations. So the challenge with this series is not to cause an explosion. That's the challenge. The challenge is to make sure that we get these things right so that they're not controversial anymore, so that we can answer the tough questions. The challenge is not to allow the explosive current culture to determine our view of the Bible, but to allow the Bible to determine our view of God, because this is where that comes from. It doesn't come from your friends. It doesn't come from somebody in your peer group. It doesn't come from your parents. It comes from here. This is where we get our answers, right? It determines everything. People say, I can't believe in God because the Bible says that God hates women. I can't believe in your Bible because it says slavery is okay. And I believe in science, so there's no way I'm going to read this thing because this is as anti-science as they come. And so I'll never open up something like that. And because they haven't read much of the Bible, they make assumptions about what's in here based on what they've heard someone else say about it because they haven't read it and even if you're a Christ follower and you seem to believe in the Bible guess what here's the statistic 90% of Christ followers have never read the Bible that means that a lot of us don't know what's in here either because we're getting little glimpses on Sunday mornings maybe little glimpses you know, through the week, maybe a meme somewhere that jumps out to us that may not be right or may not be accurate, but we believe it because it was out there. Let, let me make this statement about myself and about this church, all right? This is the theme for our entire series. Are you ready? I believe 
And we believe as a church that this is the inspired word of God. God gave this to us. I believe that with all my heart. I believe and we believe that this is the source of how to live our lives every day. I believe and we believe that it was written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which makes it truth. It's our guardrail for living, and we can't do without it. We can't just throw it away. We need this. We all need a little more Bible in our lives. We just do. Now, last week we talked about the fact that the Bible says that we can't eat shrimp. So my wife and I were out to lunch last week, and she looked at me and said, you said that we can't eat shrimp, and then said that for our anniversary, we went out and ate a shrimp dinner, and you didn't explain anything else. Like the Bible says it, I'm choosing not to follow it. I said, oh, did, did I not give the answer to that, uh, what the Bible says about eating shrimp? So what about shrimp? Well, here's the scripture again, Leviticus 11. Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales, but all the creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all other living creatures in the water, you are to regard as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, it means that you may not eat the meat from them. That's a command from God. It just is. So if you look at the charts, if you have one of these, there's a chart on this side of it, and there's the, the Bible, the library on the other side, a great reference tool for you guys to keep. So if you look at this chart of where things are, we're, we're reading from the book of Leviticus right there. That's almost all the way to the left, right, at the beginning of this whole thing, the beginning of the Bible. So you're all the way over at the left-hand side of what's going on, and you see that, you go, well, maybe before I make my final judgment on whether we can eat shrimp or not, maybe we need to open up our perspective to see what the rest of the Bible says. Because when we base our belief system on one scripture, we always end up in trouble, so you look at that, so let's, let's look at the other side of the chart. I mean, if you cross, you have the interlude, that's the seven years of, of silence in the Bible, and then you have Jesus on the middle right-hand side of that, and so when you get to the Jesus part of that, you get to the book of Mark, which is one of the Gospels, the writings about Jesus' life, and it says this in Mark 7, then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled by what comes out of your heart. So we were on this side of the chart, and it said no shrimp. We get to this side of the chart, and it's going, whoa, wait a minute. Let's reevaluate that. Let's, let's look at that again in a different context, a different form, a different way, because it's passing through the cross. It's passing through that middle is where the cross steps in, and it changes some things, right? Mark 7, 18 says this, Don't you understand either, he asked. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach, and it goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from inside you that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defiles you. So we're starting to see that shift. Something went through the cross of Jesus, and we're starting to see that shift on the right side of that chart. And then you go down to Acts chapter 10, and it says this. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. And in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, birds. Then a voice said to them, said to him, get up, Peter, and kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Again, everything from the Old Testament passes through the cross of Jesus. And some things get changed. Like you see Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it was said, but now let me fulfill that for you. Let me tell you what that really means. Since I came and I'm getting ready to die for your sins, your life is going to change. Now, some things don't change. How we live, how we love, how we treat people, how we respect each other. Those things don't change. How we love God, none of that changes. But some of our circumstance changes because it's filtered through the cross of Jesus. And I want to put my wife's mind at ease. Because of these scriptures, on the right-hand side of that chart, it's okay to eat shrimp. Don't eat it at Red Lobster. I don't recommend it. It wasn't very good. But it's okay to eat shrimp. And bacon. No round of applause. You guys are dead. Come on. How about a round of applause just for bacon itself? My favorite food of all the food groups is bacon. So there we go. You know, we're allowed to do that because the Bible says it's okay. Now, we have to understand, again, when you look at the back of, of, of this, the Bible is a library, right? You can't read it just as one single book because it's broken up into sections. It's, it's like this library, if we can show this picture. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the law. Those are the things that God says, this is how this works. These are your laws. Don't miss those. Don't disrespect those. And then you have, um, you go down into the history books, and, and you're looking at poetry, you know, like Song of Solomon and, and Psalms and Proverbs. And, and then you keep going down into uh, prophets, major and minor prophets. And, and so it's, it's divided up. And so when you pull a book off of that shelf, understand where it comes from because it's going to change your perspective and how you read it just a little bit. You go to the New Testament, you have the Gospels. Again, those books are all about the life of Jesus. And then you have the history of the church, which is the book of Acts. And, and you have the letters and Pauline letters and, and letters from Peter. And, and then you have the prophecy book, the book of Revelation. And depending on how you read all of those, you have to look at it from the perspective of this is part of Scripture, but I probably shouldn't read Old Testament poetry the same way that I read the history of the church because they're different perspectives. Now, it's all the, in the one book, and it's all important, and we need all of it, but, but that's just the way it works. And you look, at, you look at this Bible, not only is it a library, but when you look at how it came together to be how it is, it was written in three different languages, right? I, I mean, it, it was written over 1,500 years. It took 40 authors on three different continents to put this together, right? That's where this comes from. 
And here's the amazing thing about it. So many people writing this, pulling this together, it is completely unified. You're not going to find conflict inside of these pages. You're not going to find something in Genesis that is conflicting with something in the book of John. You're just not. Now, there are fulfillments and some things change, but it doesn't contradict each other, right? Well, you and I can't write about what the weather was like this morning at 8 a.m. and not contradict each other. I may say it was 8 degrees and snow was outside. You might say it was 15 degrees and ice. We might not be able to agree on that. There's nothing that disagrees with each other in this book. And that's because it was guided by the Holy Spirit to be written. In other words, the Holy Spirit used these 40 different authors and kind of led them what to write. That's how it's unified. And that's an amazing, amazing thing. And it has stood the test of time. No other book, no other history book, poetry book, prophecy book has done that, but this has. And it's still true for us today. Now, this statement made a little, a little bit of a wave last week when I said this. When I said the Bible was written for us, but not to us, let that sink in just a minute. It was written for us. Everything in this book is for us, to give us guardrails and guidance and know how to love and worship God. That's what this is. But it wasn't written to us. In other words, there was a different culture, many cultures, through that, that time period that it was written to. And if you want to understand it, you need to understand those time periods just a little bit to understand where it comes from. Let me try to explain it like this. Have you, have you seen any of the weird laws that are on the books out there? Have you ever looked at the, the laws, you know, and go, why do they have that? I, I mean, maybe, maybe like this one. You've seen the one in Alabama, it's illegal to carry ice cream in your back pocket. <laughs> Makes perfect sense to me, right? I'm not going to put my ice cream in my back pocket. I'm going to eat it. That's what I'm going to do. You know, why do you put ice cream in your back pocket? Well, in the day that this was written, the main form of transportation was horse. And horse thieves came up with this clever idea that if they put ice cream in their back pocket, the horse would follow them. And then they're not technically stealing the horse. They're just finding the horse on their property after it followed them home because it wanted the ice cream. That's brilliant, by the way. I, I, but they made a law about it, so we can't do it. So, you know, it's like, okay, well, that makes sense, you know. Uh, or in Arizona, it's illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. I'm not letting a donkey sleep in my bathtub. I'm glad it's illegal, Right? You hear that and think, why? It doesn't make any sense. Well, in 1924, there was a rancher who kept a donkey in his bathtub. And there was a flood, and the donkey in the tub got washed down into this mud basin, and the entire town had to work for several days to rescue the donkey. And so they said, listen, Mr. Farmer Brown, no more don donkeys in bathtubs. Because it took too long to get that stupid thing out of there. Right, so they put the laws on the book to keep it from happening. If you lived in that culture, if you lived at that time, and somebody said, you can't put a donkey in a bathtub? Oh, man, Farmer Brown did that. It took us forever to get that donkey out of there. You would understand because you understood the context behind the law. So that kind of leads us into this, this next 
point, which is never read one verse out of context. I mean, never do that. Never just pull a verse out and say, that's my new theology. Why? Because it's not going to be your new theology for long, right? It just, it, it, it just isn't. I mean, we talked last week about tattoos. You know, the Bible says you can't have a tattoo. That's, that's immoral. That, that's, that's not going to be stood for. You need to get out of this church if you have a tattoo. That's what people would have said. Why? Because they're reading one scripture in the Old Testament that says don't cut yourselves or tattoo your bodies in worship to another God. It's not about having Grandma Bertha tattooed on your arm. It's about cutting yourself and making marks on yourself to worship another deity. And that's what it says it's not okay to do. It doesn't have anything to say about your tattoo of whatever you have, wherever you have it, right? It doesn't say anything about that. So you're looking to these verses, and verses are always a part of a larger story. You can never keep them just one alone. Now, you can get the daily verse from the YouVersion app, which is cool to read and give you some inspiration and get you into the Bible. Those are great. Just don't base your whole theology on one verse. What does the entire chapter or the paragraph say? What does this specific book of the Bible, what does it say? Who was it written to? Why was it written? Where is the specific book in the overall story of that chart that we had up there, right? Where does it fall in there? Because it helps you to understand what it's about. Now, there are so many beliefs that we have that are wrong because we like to cherry-pick Bible verses, right? There just are. Do you know anybody that does that? They pick one verse and then they want to fight about it, want to argue about it, say, this is the way it is. Is it really? Did you miss the rest of the context of the chapter? Did you miss the rest of what the Bible says? Probably. Glad you're in your Bible, but don't let that one verse define you. You know, listen to this quote from the early 1900s, and tell me if you can relate to this quote, all right, if this is something you would want as, as maybe for your life. He says this, I fell down on my knees and thanked heaven from an overflowing heart for granting me the good fortune of being permitted to live at this time. I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. I am fighting for the work of the Lord. Anybody else want to live like that? Anybody else want that to be kind of your life? Kind of your, your life right there? You're living for God. You're so grateful for what He's given you. You're, you're just pouring it all back out to Him. Hearts overflowing with gratitude. Here's the problem. You know who that's a quote of? Adolf Hitler and Mein Kampf. That's his quote. Not exactly who we want to be modeling, is it? It, it just isn't. And Adolf Hitler would cherry pick verse after verse after verse to kind of create his theology and what he was doing and how he justified killing over six million Jewish men, women, and children by just simply cherry-picking Bible verses. But it was all based on the Bible. It didn't take long for things to start burning out of control, did it? And then it was hard to try to stop. That's what happened early on in this country, too. And when you look at the history of our country and the painful topic of slavery in this country, you know that we based our beliefs on slavery 
by misquoting Bible verses? You know that, right? We justified the incredibly horrendous acts that we did and we backed them with Scripture. Unbelievable that we did that, but we did that. Listen to this quote from an 1861 Presbyterian minister. He says this, It is surely high time that the Bible view of slavery should be examined. And you read this quote, you think, yes, he's going to start to correct this and make it right and, and stop slavery. And he goes on and says this, And that should begin to meet the infidel fanaticism of our infatuated enemies, talking about the abolitionists, upon the elevated ground of a, uh, of a divine warrant for the institution of slavery that we are resolved to cherish. This is a minister on a Sunday morning preaching a pro-slavery teaching from the Bible. And you're going, how can you do that? I mean, how? I know all of you are looking like I'm very uncomfortable right now. I am too, all right? Because it's a difficult thing to talk about. It's a horrendous thing that we did in this country. I mean, absolutely unexcusable, period. But yet we based it on Scripture. So let me ask you this question. This question: Does God say it's okay to have slaves? Somebody answer me. Yes or no? No? Yes? Yeah? How about reading these scriptures? How about Ephesians 6, 5? Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would Christ. Exodus 21, 2. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve you for no more than six years. Could you read those and say that slavery is okay? Could you read those two scriptures and say, well, God, God must think it's good because he talks about it there and says, if you own one, then it's okay. Is that what God says? God did not create slavery and he did not want slavery. People created slavery. It wasn't God. It was people. And as far as God goes, God created us in his image, which is an image of dignity and greatness. And what's slavery? It's opposite of that. Slavery is, is nothing with dignity. It takes away how and why God created us because it breaks us down to the bottom of everything about what we think about ourselves. And I couldn't imagine being in the role that the people in this country that were bound to slavery and how they had to live, I couldn't imagine that. Not okay, period. Not okay. God starts to tear down slavery in the ancient world. Here's what the rest of Exodus 21.2, it says this. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years. Here's the next part of it. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. Now, that's not how slavery typically worked in the ancient world. You were property, right? You, you weren't supposed to be released at any point in time. And God comes in and says, we're going to change this. We're going to change this scenario. We're going to change this thought process to where after six years, the seventh year, you're free. 
You can go. You can live your life. And until God starts setting up something different, it would never have changed in the ancient world. And he starts tearing apart how it worked. Year seven, you had to set them free. Now, it doesn't excuse the fact that there still was slavery happening, but God didn't create it. He's creating a way to break it. Exodus 21, 16. Anyone who kidnaps someone has to be put to death whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. God says you can't go kidnap someone and make them your slave. If you do that, guess what? You deserve to die. That's what God says. That's not pulling that scripture out of context. That's what he says. Slavery in our culture, don't miss this, is not the same as slavery in the Bible. All right? It's, it's different. When we hear the word slavery... What image comes to your mind? For, yeah, yeah, plantations. You know, for me, it was the, the series Roots. When I was a kid, uh, that was kind of what stuck with me all these years is the, the incredibly horrible injustices that were done to the people that were the, the slave people in this country. Unbelievably horrible. And you look at that and you go, okay, that's my viewpoint of slavery. It's the transatlantic slave trades. That's what we think about with slavery. And that's when European slave traders went to Africa. They kidnapped men, women, and children, brought them back to the Americas, and sold them as property. Friends, we don't have enough time to go into how evil, wrong, and disgusting that is. We just don't. But it is all those things and so much more. When you read the word slave in the Bible, the image that should come up to your mind is more of a servant, not somebody that's in chains, right? You could sell yourself to be a bondservant. That was part of that culture. So you could pay off a debt. Maybe so you could survive. Maybe so you could earn a skill. It was common for parents that were poor to sell their children into slavery or servanthood so that their children could eat. Otherwise, they would probably died, right, to make sure they could survive. That still isn't something that we want to have happen, but it also wasn't what we think of as slavery. Now, in the New Testament, up to 30% of the population were slaves. That's one in three people. But those people were doctors, lawyers, teachers, bakers. That's who the servants or the slaves were. Now, they would be put into slavery. They would get whatever they needed training-wise to become an active part of society, and they chose that many times so that they could benefit themselves and everybody else around them. Here's another important difference between slavery in biblical times and the transatlantic slave trades. In biblical times, slavery was not race-based. In the slavery we think of, it was all race-based, right? I mean, it just was. In biblical times, it was an economic system. It wasn't racial. People weren't kidnapped from their homes and, and based on the color of their skin and forcibly sold into this bondage. And it's interesting to see God tearing the system of slavery apart. God says, if you kill a slave, you must be punished. Not the way it happened in this country. And we kind of miss that verse, right? If you kill a slave, you must be punished. He goes on to say, if your slave is permanently injured... They have to be set free. Not true in this country. They were most likely killed if they were injured. 
I love what he says in Deuteronomy about every seventh year when you have to set your slaves free. He said, when you do that, you have to give them livestock. Livestock. Hey, you served me for six years. Here's something in repayment to you so you can get started in your own life. And you had to give them the best wine from your stores. Not Boone's Farm or Mad Dog 2020. For those of you that drink wine, all right? This is the good stuff. Why? Because God wants them to have a good life from this point on. He wants to bless them. And that's going to give dignity back to these people. Now, in the New Testament, there's a rich guy named Philemon. Actually, it's a book of the Bible almost at the end of the New Testament. And uh, Philemon is a rich man. Um, He's a Christian. He's part of the church of Colossae. He has lots of servants or slaves. And one of them named Onesimus steals money from Philemon, and then he runs away. Here's the fun part of this. While, While Onesimus is running away, he runs right into the Apostle Paul. All right? They're crossing paths. God's got a plan. And he becomes a Christian. And Paul tells him, tells Onesimus, you have to go back to Philemon. You need to repent, apologize, make amends with your former master. And then Paul writes a letter to Philemon. And he tells him how he's supposed to treat Onesimus when he comes back. All right, here we go. Philemon uh, verse 16. It's only one chapter. It's a quick read, guys. Philemon uh, verse 16. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Friends, that's how we're supposed to treat people, period. We're supposed to treat them as friends, as equals, as people that are similar to us, especially if we're a Christian. That's how we're supposed to treat people. And that's what God wants for this country. I'm positive of that. For us to get rid of all the junk from the past and love each other as brothers and sisters and friends and Christians. It was absolutely wrong for people to use the Bible to justify slavery. Absolutely wrong. They knew better than that. They knew more of what the scripture says than probably we do. But they chose to cherry pick those verses and make their faith based on that, which was absolutely wrong. But let me tell you, let me tell you what, it's right to love God and love people. It was wrong to say slavery was okay. It's right to love God and love people, all people, everywhere. No matter what political party someone is, if you're a Republican, you love the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, you love the Republicans. If you're an independent, God bless you, you got to love everybody. And it's getting ready to get ugly this year again, and I hate that. We have to love everyone, right? Everyone. doesn't matter what skin color they have. That's irrelevant, completely irrelevant. You love people because they're people. You love people because God loves them, period. We're all created in the image of God. doesn't matter who your ancestors were. doesn't matter where they came from. It doesn't matter your personal bias or your personal feelings. You love people because God loves people. And you love God so you love people. Jesus loves unconditionally. He loves you unconditionally. No matter where you've been or what you've done, he still loves you. 
No matter what your background is, he still loves you. No matter what your skin tone is, he still loves you. No matter what your, your face or eyes look like or whether you have hair or no hair, doesn't matter. Jesus still loves you because you were created in the image of God. Dignified, respected, worthy. When you look at people, I want you to see beyond the surface. See in their heart that God loves them. And what could change if you chose to love? Will you pray with me? Father God, I pray for everyone in this room and everyone watching online. God, just open us up. I mean, this, the, the, these atrocities that have happened in this country for, for so long, God, and I, I know we're making strides, but we're nowhere even close to being where we need to be. And, and God, I'm just praying that, that you allow our hearts to see people as people, nothing else, just people that you love and that we need to love. Thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.